Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat, this opportunity that we have to gather as Mishpacha's family to worship in unity uh, before you, Father, to worship uh, in your presence and to experience the might and the power of your Ruach HaKodesh, of your Holy Spirit in our midst. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your word heard, your word received, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose. Father, have your way in our lives today and allow us to leave this place changed and transformed by your word so that we can impact the world around us with the truth of the good news of your Messiah. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen. Uh, so this week, uh, as we said earlier in the Torah service, we're in Parsha Kitetzei. Um, I've had kind of over and over again over the past several weeks, and if you've paid attention to the messages, if you haven't, go back and re-listen to them and pay attention again. But if you pay attention to the message, there's this overbearing theme that the Lord has put on my heart as we move through this season of the seven weeks of consolation, this period of time uh, between Tisha B'Av when the temple was destroyed not once but twice in the history of Israel and a number of other atrocities have occurred on that same day to the Jewish people uh, across our history uh, leading up to Rosh Hashanah uh, which is the beginning of the ten days of awe or the season of repentance that we enter into in Judaism uh, and and so there's this message that has just been an overwhelming uh, burden on my heart, this idea of repentance and God's faithfulness and being merciful and gracious in spite of often who we are solely because of who he is. And so as I was digging through this Parsha, this the same thing kept creeping up over and over and over again. And I think about this period of time, the, the seven weeks of consolation, where we read basically from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 60 uh, in, our Haftorah, uh, in our Haftorah readings throughout the, the, uh, the, the synagogue movement the world over. And I realized that the, the heart of Isaiah over and over and over again wasn't a prophecy of destruction. Although there was a continual prophecy of destruction to the nation of Israel because of our sins that he had to bring to our people. But the heart of Isaiah wasn't a message of destruction. The heart of Isaiah and the prophecy that the Lord was speaking through him was one of return. Or in Hebrew, we call teshuvah, uh, this idea of repentance. You know, we have this notion in kind of the Western body of Messiah, the repentance is just simply asking for forgiveness. Just simply going, oh, psh. God, I totally messed up again. Sorry about that. Um, I'll try my hardest next time. Uh, and then we go on about our lives. We tend to make the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. And we're repenting for the same sin over and over and over and over again. But in Scripture, when we look at the, the idea, the, the concept of repentance in Scripture, we see that it's this idea in Hebrew of teshuvah. And teshuvah means to return. And the, 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 the kind of base definition and understanding of the word teshuvah is you realize you're walking in the wrong direction. 
right? So you're walking down the aisle towards the, the exit, and you realize that you're walking in the wrong direction. You stop dead in your tracks, you make a 180-degree turn, and you walk back into the arms of our Heavenly Father. This is the idea, the biblical concept of repentance. It is we stop what we're doing that we recognize is wrong, and we return in faithfulness to the loving embrace of our Heavenly Father. And so I started to dig into this Parsha, and, and this one particular passage here just continued to jump out at me over and over and over again. And it's, if you have your scriptures, go to open up there. It's Deuteronomy chapter 21, beginning with verse 18. Deuteronomy 21, verse 18. It says, suppose a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not listen to the voice of his father or mother. They discipline him, but he does not listen to them. Then his father and mother are to grab a hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city, to the gates uh, of his place. They will say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He does not listen to our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city are to stone him with stones to death, so you will purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear and be afraid. Now, right out the gate, sounds pretty atrocious, yeah? Uh, you know, my kid acts up all the time, no doubt about it. There's a lot of me in, them, in, in him. There's no doubt he's going to act up a lot. But I could never find myself in a situation where I would think, all right, that's the line. I'm done at this. We're going to go off you and be done because this is ridiculous I'll try again uh, and uh, I, I can't I can't wrap my head around that being a real idea or concept that I would I would I would live by and then I realized in looking through uh, not only the the scriptures as a whole but if we go back and we look through Jewish history what we realize is this random command that seems to kind of come out of nowhere and appears to make no sense whatsoever to our western quote-unquote rational minds Nowhere in the history of the Jewish people will you read of this actually having occurred. Nowhere. There is one rabbi in obscurity in history that says, um, I know a kid that this happened to and I've sat at his grave. But he's never actually, nobody ever knows who it was, where it was, when it happened. And the reality to the whole purpose was this, is that last line, and all Israel will hear and be afraid. If it had actually happened, we would have known and we would have feared the reality, the consequence of our actions, all right? And so as I was reading through this, I thought, it's pretty interesting. When we look through the rest of the Torah, we recognize that anytime capital punishment was a requirement in, in the Torah, anytime that there was a sin or a, a error that required capital punishment, it required a couple of things. First and foremost, and this would be one of those things, first and foremost is it requires two or more witnesses. So the mother and the father are those witnesses. It can't be the father brings the kid and goes, look, I'm just tired of him, take care of business doesn't work that way it's got to be the mother and the father if the mother was tired of it the mother can't just take him to the gates of the elders and say hey i'm tired of it get rid of them it has to be both the mother and the father so the mother and father are the witnesses two or more witnesses beyond that when we look through the totality of torah it actually talks about how whenever there's capital punishment and there's two or three two or more witnesses that the witnesses have to be the ones to cast the first stones so here it says that the elders would stone him but what it doesn't talk about is that capital punishment requires that the witnesses cast the first stones and then the elders will finish the process. So when we go here, not only do the parents have to take their kid to the pre or to the, the, the elders at the gate of the city and go, hey, my kid's a train wreck. I'm done with it. I wash my hands of it. You guys kill him and, and, and that's over. It won't be an issue anymore. But the parents have to stand as witness and say, in essence, there is no hope left for my child. There is no hope left for my child. I don't know of a single parent who has the worst possible children alive who doesn't still hold out hope 
for their children to return. Can't think of anybody. So the parents have to first say, there's no hope left for my kid, and then the parents have to be willing to stone their kids, to take part in it. I think part of the reason why we never read about it happening is because it didn't happen, because there wasn't a need for it. Because the overarching message of the scriptures, as we said last week, is a message of restoration and repentance. And this was here to give us a reminder of God's desire for us to return to him. And I feel like and wholeheartedly believe that there is a far greater message that is in this that is prophetic than what we could, could imagine in just reading the text itself. Uh, as a matter of fact, I believe that that message is actually something that is for not just the nation of Israel and holding to this idea. But I believe that it's a prophetic revelation for the people of Israel as a whole, the Jewish people, and a prophetic revelation for all of God's creation as a whole. And the reason I believe this is because over and over again in the scriptures, we see a continuing stream of thought. We see a continuing uh, uh, concept of relationship that the Lord uses and reveals in his interaction with his creation. And that is that he calls us his children. Over and over and over and over again throughout the scriptures, he calls us his children. We go to Luke 15, verse 11, beginning. This is what's called the, the parable of the prodigal son. And it's infamous for a lot of different reasons. First and foremost, there's a lot of anti-Semitic uh, vitriol that is often spewed about this. It's just not accurate historically unless you just ignore history and make things up as you go. Uh, but aside from that, it's, it's a very common parable that's used in discussing this idea of return. And so I want to ask you to turn there real quick. Luke 15, verse 11. Does then Yeshua said a certain man had two sons, and a younger of them said to the father, Father, give me uh, the share of the property that comes to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything and traveled to a far country, and there he squandered his inheritance on wild living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine came against that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was lodging, uh, longing to fill up on the carob pods that the pigs were eating, but no one was giving him any. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have food overflowing? But here I am dying of hunger. I'll go up and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your presence. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So first and foremost, contextually, the son has now gone to his father and has said, I would like my inheritance. When do we get an inheritance? Typically when somebody is about to die or has died. So the son has gone to his father and says, Hey, I kind of... In my mind, you're dead. I want your money. I want what's due me, and I'm going to vanish. I'm going to take off. In my mind, you're dead. I'm turning my back on you. I'm going to walk away. And so he tells his father, give me my inheritance. Give me what's mine. And he leaves, and he goes, and he does whatever in the world he wants, wherever he wants, and he wastes everything away until finally a famine comes across the land, and he's left with literally nothing. And he goes and he hires himself as a servant on some random person's farm uh, in this foreign country that he's in. And he's sent to go work with the, the pigs and to take up after the pigs and, and the food that the pigs are eating. Now keep in mind, this is a famine. Pigs will eat anything. So they've got these carob pods that they're feeding them because there's nothing else to feed them. They'll eat anything. And he's looking at what the pigs are eating and going, kind of looks good right now. I'm really, really hungry. I would be happy if somebody would just give me one of those to eat. And then it suddenly dawns on him, you know what? My father's hired workers 
The people that work on his property have plenty to eat. I'll just go back to my father and, and tell him, look, I, I definitely messed up, no doubt about it. Just bring me on as one of your hired workers. I, I don't want to be your son again. I, I don't think that you have any obligation to restore me to that place. I just want to work on your property. I just want to be a part of those that are working. And this is where it gets interesting. Verse 20, and he got up and he went to his own father, but while he was still far away, his father saw him and felt compassion. He ran and fell on his uh, neck and kissed him. Then he said to, then he, the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your presence. I am no longer worthy to be your son. Notice how this kid is making his way back to his father. Hasn't had a chance to get there. Hasn't had a chance to say his spiel yet. But he's rushing back to his father. And it says while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming and chased after him. I want you to think about that for a moment. If you're inside your house, you're doing whatever you're doing, and somebody's driving down uh, County Road 64 towards your house, you're inside, you're at the back of the house, you're working in the kitchen, are you going to be able to see who's coming? No. His father, this entire time, had been waiting in the front of the property for his son to return. And when he saw him coming from the distance, he ran after him. To make up that gap, he ran after him. And as the son begins to pour his heart out and says, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I don't deserve to be your son anymore. Will you at least hire me on as one of your servants? His father wraps his arms around him. And he tells his servants to go and to bring out the best clothing that it has, to put a ring and sandals on his feet, to give him a makeover, if you would, and clean him up as a son restored and renewed. And he has a fattened calf slaughtered, and they have a huge feast and party in his honor think about that this son who told his father you're dead to me whether he said it in so many words or not doesn't matter he asked for his inheritance he told his father you're dead to me and he runs off and when he comes back just hoping to be able to grovel enough to work in the stables his father meets him off in the distance he doesn't even get all the way to the property his father meets him in the distance and wraps his arms around him and tells him i forgive you i love you and i want to restore you now his older brother gets upset because of what he hears is going on and what he sees and, and his father has to remind him, look, everything that I have is yours. But it was right that we have a party in honor of your brother because he has been restored. He has returned. This is part of the same prophetic message that we read about in this week's Parsha with the wayward son. This is a child who has gone so far off the deep end that there's no hope left. But yet his parents are still holding out hope, hence why we never read about it occurring. It's a prophetic message of the reality of God's desire for his children, for his creation. That no matter how far we walk away from him, no matter how far we go, no matter how distant we become, no matter how despicable our actions are, no matter how horrible our attitudes are, no matter how much mess we get into, he's standing there waiting, waiting for us to return, waiting for us to come back to him waiting for us to, to, to return, return to him in response and say, I love you, I yearn for you, will you have me back? 
Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 30. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. This is uh, towards the beginning of what is kind of the preamble to the blessings and curses. At the end of Deuteronomy, uh, the Lord says, after everything that uh, he said would happen, the blessings and curses have happened uh, on Israel. In verse 30, he says, when you're in distress and all these things have come on you, in the latter days you will return to Adonai your God and listen to his voice. For Adonai your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. When we look back at, uh, at uh, the Talmud, uh, in particular the, 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 uh, the Mishnah, Deuteronomy Rabbah, speaking specifically of this passage from Deuteronomy 4.30, but it carries over even to what we read here and this idea of the wayward son and then also in the prodigal son, Rabbi Meir said, to what is this matter like? It is like the son of a king who took through evil ways the king sent a tutor to him who appealed to him saying repent my son but the son sent him back to his father saying how can I have the effrontery to return I am ashamed to come before you thereupon his father sent back word my son is a son ever ashamed to return to his father and is it not to your father that you will be returning the Pasika Rabada, uh, Rabadi uh, recounts in connection to the same concept says a king had a son who had gone astray from his father on a journey of a hundred days his friend said to him return to your father he said I cannot then his father sent word return as far as you can and I will come the rest of the way to you so God says return to me and I will return to you the overarching narrative throughout scripture from the first sin itself when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit or more specifically when Adam shirked his responsibilities the head of the household and allowed Eve to eat of the fruit and then partook of it himself from the foundations of sin entering humanity God's single desire has been for us to return in repentance for us to return to our heavenly father over and over again we see this image this is why the Lord continually calls Israel and creation as a whole his children over and over and over again. This is why he called Israel out, the Jewish people out as the smallest nation of all the nations on the earth so that they could be brought back in restoration to live an example of restoration for the rest of the nations to be able to see the restoration God has in store for his creation. This is why Romans says that in the same way that salvation was given to the Jews, it has also come to the nations. And then he says that the nations have been brought into the body of Messiah to drive the Jew to jealousy for his God. So it's our job as the Jewish people to show to the rest of creation the restoration that God has in store for those that return. The nations brought in the body of Messiah is our job as a whole to show to the Jewish world the restoration that God has in store for his creation through Messiah. We go to Isaiah 54. This is this week's Haftorah Parsha. This is right in the midst of these uh, seven messages of consolation from Isaiah. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, last week we read from Isaiah 52 and 53, a section of uh, this section of scripture from Isaiah 40 to 60 that has conveniently been carved out of the Haftorah cycle for this period of time uh, because the Jewish world as a whole, not seeing Yeshua as Messiah, doesn't quite know yet how to respond to this passage, which blatantly speaks of the death of Yeshua and the sacrifice that he would make on our behalf. And we pick up here in Isaiah 54, beginning with verse 4. It says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed, nor cringe, for you will not be disgraced. 
For you will forget the shame of your youth and you will remember the reproach of your widowhood no more. For your maker is your husband. Adonai Zevaud is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He will be called God of all the earth. For Adonai has called you back like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of one's youth that is rejected, says your God, for a brief moment I deserted you. And I want you to to grasp these verses 7 and 8. Isaiah 54, 7 and 8. Write that down. Go back and study it for yourself. The beauty of these next two verses is that it reiterates the promise of the 13 attributes of God in Exodus chapter 20, uh, uh, Exodus chapter 34. It says here, verse 7 of Isaiah 54, For a brief moment I deserted you, but I will regather you from great, uh, with great compassion. And the word there for compassion in the Hebrew is racham, with great mercy. I am uh, in a surge of anger. I hid my face, my pene, my, uh, my face from you uh, a moment, but with everlasting kindness. And the Hebrew word is chesed, this, this kindness, this loving kindness. I will have compassion. Racham again, I will have compassion on you, says Adonai, your Gaal, your Redeemer. If we go back to Exodus 34, verse 6, where we read about these 13 attributes of God, it says, Then Adonai passed before him and proclaimed Adonai, Adonai, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth, showing mercy to a thousand generations, forgiving the iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means leaving the guilty unpunished, but bringing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the fourth, uh, third and fourth generation. And so we see here this idea of mercy, of renewal, of restoration that God desires more than anything for his creation. And this passage in Isaiah 54 comes after this long book of Isaiah with prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of God saying he is going to destroy Jerusalem, he's going to destroy the temple, he's going to wipe the, the nation of Israel, bring them out of the land of, of Egypt, and he's going to scatter them among the nations around them. Over and over and over again, this message is there, which is the exact message of the blessings and curses. He says, if you live by my word, I will bless you. If you live contrary to my word, I will curse you. And in those curses, you will be scattered to the nations. But when both the blessing and the curse occur and you come back to me, I will restore you and renew you. And I will put my dwelling among you. And so here we see this idea of the wayward son where there's this, pro, the, the, this command given that if your child is so far gone that there's no hope left for him, you can bring him before the elders of the community at the gates of the city and say, there's no hope left for my child. He doesn't listen to my voice. By the way, mimicking the heart of God that we read about over and over and over in Scripture where he says, listen to my voice. Listen to my voice. Listen to my voice. The Torah Parsha says that we bring the child before the, the elders at the gate of the city and say, he's, he's lost, he's gone, there's no hope left for him. He's a glutton and a drunkard, and he doesn't listen to our voice. Sanhedrin 70a and 72a out of the Talmud says, the wayward and rebellious son is executed on account of the future. As the Torah penetrates his ultimate intentions, eventually he will squander his father's money, seek what he has become habituated to, not find it and stand at the crossroads and rob people, killing them thereby incurring the death penalty. Says the Torah, let him die innocent rather than have him die guilty. So the idea of the wayward son isn't just that this kid doesn't listen, but the parents recognize that he's so far gone that at some point he's going to not only be beyond return, but he's going to be so far gone that he's going to damage other people. And then they're to bring him before the community. 
So notice that the wayward son, should he be killed, he's not being killed because he's misbehaving. He would be killed because of how terrible he could become. But the reality is, as we serve a God who desires a relationship with his children so much that he already knows what we will become. He was well aware before he ever laid the foundations of creation what Adam and Eve were going to do. He was well aware before he laid the foundations of creation what you and I were going to do. The way we were going to mess our lives up, how many other lives we were going to mess up, how far into sin and depravity we were going to allow ourselves to go. And yet he created us. In spite of all of that, solely to have relationship with us. Even more so, having known what we were going to do, he created us solely to restore us in relationship with him. As a matter of fact, the very next passage here in Deuteronomy chapter 21 explains prophetically part of the way that this restoration is going to become a reality. If you go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 22, it says, suppose a man is guilty of a sin with a death, penalty, uh, death sentence and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree Historically, uh, the way this would happen is they would kill the, the person stoning him and then they would hang him by his wrist as a reminder to the community because the whole purpose to the, the idea of capital punishment in Torah was so that the community of Israel would see and the, they would remove that sin from their midst and they would learn a lesson from what was happening. So if they did, they would hang them by their wrist after they were dead. They would hang them by their wrist, but they had to take them down off of that tree that they were hung from by sundown as per this. His body is not to remain all night on the tree. Instead, you must certainly bury him the same day for anyone hanged is a curse of God. You must not defile your land for Adonai your God is giving you an inheritance. So now when we fast forward to the message of Yeshua's sacrifice, we recognize that he was in fact hung in essence on a tree. And he was hung for the, the sins of the nation of Israel. He took the curse that is prophesied of here. Notice Yeshua lived a sinless life, a spotless life. He was a spotless lamb in order to be our atonement. He took this curse upon himself so that you and I could be redeemed by his blood for our sins. So that we could return as prodigals coming back to our father who's waiting, unlike the narrative of the prodigal son, the parable that's there, he's not waiting back at the property, staring down the road. He's right behind you. And he's waiting for you to turn back around to him. He's waiting for you to make Teshuvah, to return in restoration back to your heavenly father. He desires nothing more than to be reunited with you. His creation this is a message that was spoken to the Jewish people and ultimately through the Jewish people to the nations and now returned through the nations back to the Jewish people so that we can, in fact, be restored. And as is said here at the end of Deuteronomy 4, verse 30 and 31 that we read earlier, for Adonai, your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. He wants you to come back to him. He wants nothing more than to restore you in love and compassion so that you will be united with your Heavenly Father again. Ultimately, this is a prophetic message of what my people, the Jewish people, would do in renouncing Yeshua's Messiah and denying that He is Yeshua uh, Messiah and denying that He is our salvation. We have squandered away the reality of what God has freely given to us 
to bring restoration, what he has prophesied and promised over and over and over and over and over again that he would do. And yet, the same God that spoke the words of promise of restoration through Isaiah over and over and over again is still speaking the same words of promise of restoration to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people. And his desire is nothing more than for the Jewish people to open their eyes to the truth of Yeshua and return to Shuvah, make a return back to him and his loving embrace, likewise then inspiring the nations to do so. And the nations coming into that embrace will likewise continue to inspire the Jewish people to come back to salvation. And in this we will see the reality of Romans 11, this promise of life from the dead becoming a reality for his people. Many of us in this room right now, as a matter of fact, all of us in this room right now, have all made mistakes. Some of us probably have this morning. Some of us probably have in the last 10 minutes. Really wish that rabbi would shut up already. Um, some of us have made really, really big mistakes. And the rest of us have made even bigger ones. But it doesn't matter how you have damaged the image and likeness that you were created in. The Lord wants nothing more than through His Son who took a curse upon Himself so that we could be restored. He wants nothing more than for you to run back to His loving embrace so that He can wash the stains of your sins away. So that he can put the robe and the garments and the, 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 these, these celebratory garments of restoration. This idea of restoring you to this, his son. As a matter of fact, if we look at the idea of, of salvation and repentance itself within salvation. How is it that we return to him? We return simply saying, I'm nothing. I'm nothing without you. I realize that I have messed up. I realize that I have sinned. I realize that without you, I fall short of the glory that I was created in. I realize that I am not worthy to be your child. But will you please restore me anyways? Will you please restore me anyways? And he says, not only are you worthy of being my child, but you are so worthy that I created you so that I could restore you. So that I could wrap my arms around you. We so regularly focus on our past, on our mistakes, on our sins. We so regularly focus on the way others have hurt us or we have hurt others that we lose sight of the restoration that God is wanting to do in our lives and our hearts. This is a prophetic message spoken over and over and over again throughout the Word of God, not just to the nation of Israel, but to the nation of Israel as an example to the nations as a whole of what God wants to do for his creation. Unfortunately, throughout history, the Jewish people, we have hoarded the message of God's restoration spoken throughout the Tanakh for ourselves. And since the onslaught of, or the rise, onslaught's a really pitiful word, sorry, bad choice. Since the rise of what we know as the church, the body of Messiah, separate from his Jewish roots and Jewish, entity, uh, Jewish identity, has hoarded the message of the restoration promised throughout the Gospels. But the reality is, is from Genesis to Revelation, it's all the same message of restoration. Genesis to Revelation is one constant cry of a father waiting for his prodigal son to return. Of a father saying, 
You're a pretty wayward child. You're pretty bad off, but I've still got hope. I've still got hope. I still want you to come back. And the work of Yeshua, the sacrifice that he performed, that he allowed to happen, was on our behalf so that we could be that prodigal son who hears, welcome back. Let's throw a feast for you. Let's have a party in your honor because you were once dead and now you're alive. God wants you to find and understand and live in the reality of the life that can only be received in the blood atonement of Messiah Yeshua and the literal presence of God residing in you. And as I said last week, today is the day. If you're sitting here right now, if you're listening online, and you recognize that these words are ringing true in your heart, the Lord simply wants you to cry out in return. And just like the father in the narrative or the parable of the prodigal son, the Lord is standing there waiting. He says, come to me as far as you can, and I will meet you. He doesn't even expect us to be perfect yet. As a matter of fact, he knows we're still idiots even after we come to salvation. and It's a perfecting process from there. He doesn't expect us to be perfect, but he does expect us to yearn to encounter his perfection, to encounter his restoration. So I encourage you, if you are listening to these words today, do not let today pass by. Do not say there's always tomorrow because we don't have a promise of tomorrow. But we do have a promise of restoration right now. Now is the time to cry out in return. Avarachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you that you are our Heavenly Father. We thank you that you have created us in spite of knowing we're going to walk away from you. Father, I thank you that you have used the nation of Israel over and over and over again in spite of our own errors and mistakes to show the beauty of the restoration of new life that you desire for your creation, that you have provided and that you simply long for us to come to you in repentance and receive. Father, I thank you that you have uh, not created Jew and Gentile, but you've created humanity and that your creation is your children, are your children. That your desire is for your children to return to you, that you have called out the Jewish people to be a light into the nations and the nations to drive the Jew to jealousy for his own God and that cyclically we work together to see all creation restored and renewed in you. Father, breathe new life into us today. As we return to you and cry out, we are unworthy. Father, we thank you that you say, not only are we worthy, but we are throwing a feast for you on your behalf because you were once dead and now you're alive. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen.